And so uh, I will pray for us, and then I'll ask you to stand as we read God's word. So let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for your word. And as we approach it now, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, Illuminate your word. Make it come alive to us. Uh, Communicate to us this morning as we open your word. Uh, Give us understanding that we might grow in conformity to Christ uh, and in mission in your world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. Uh, So this is uh, Revelation 7, uh, verses 9 to 12. This is the word of the Lord. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we live in a divided and disoriented world. I don't think we have to look far to see the division. Simply open up your social media or your favorite news app. Uh, or read in the history books. Um, We live in a world of division. It is a part of uh, humanity. It is a part of our experience. We are divided from one another culturally, uh, ethnically, linguistically, politically, socially. We live in a divided world. Uh, We also live in a disoriented world. Um, You don't have to look far there either. Uh, Watch a recent movie, and you'll see that uh, the messages and the vision and the goals that uh, in our world and our culture are very confused. We don't know what we want. We don't know what we're looking for. It's another word of saying we're lost, that this, the world is lost in many ways, uh, confused, disoriented, and not sure where we are going. Well, this text this morning shows us that this will not always be the case. This text is a a promise that there is hope, that there is a bigger picture at play. And that bigger picture is the story of God's redemption. And this text we see this morning, it tells us this, that 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 division and that disorientation will not always be the case because the story ends differently. And because we know how the story ends, we can live our chapter well. Because we know how the story ends, we can live our chapter well. But in order to live our chapter well, we must see and know a few things from this, from this text this morning. We have to see the unity, the division, and the lamb. The unity, the division, and the lamb. So first, we'll look at the unity. What does this passage tell us? 
What do we see in this text? Well, this is really a call, as I said, to, for us to take hope. This, you know, this letter was written to, to Christians in persecution, experiencing incredible suffering at the hands of, of those who were trying to um, destroy the church, destroy the movement of Jesus. And so it's written to give comfort. It's written to give us a promise that God will fulfill his promise to save all the nations of the earth. That the division and the persecution that you experience today will not last forever. That one day we will experience full reconciliation with God and neighbor in heavenly glory. In heavenly glory. And so it's a call to participate in God's global mission in his global worshiping community. It's a call for us, this unity, unified in worshiping God. Now, you know, as I said, why did they need comforting? Well, they were being persecuted. Why were they being persecuted? Because they were pursuing global mission. They were seeking to make known the name of Jesus Christ and salvation in him. And it led to their being persecuted. So this letter is written to bring them and us comfort. Now, I want us to look at this picture here, at this image, this glimpse of the future. And I want us to see that really this is a picture of what the world is longing for. You know, what, what do you have here? You have a, a diverse international community of, of self-giving people, right? You see that there's this uh, enormous uh, people that no one can count, and they're all unified, even though they're different, they're unified, and they're not seeking to serve themselves, but they're seeking to serve others, right? They're worshiping God. They're adoring something greater than themselves. This is really what the world is looking for. I mean, you know, if you read a company or a college mission statement, you don't have to look far to see that these are goals that they're looking for, right? To have a diverse community of self-giving people. Now, the question is, does the world have the resources to really bring that about? Well, our text shows us that no, because they're missing the key ingredient, which we will see. So we see here this wonderful global family of God worshiping before the throne of God <clears throat> in celebration and worship. Now, there's, there's no other time in history where we've known so much about the world, about other cultures, other peoples, and yet, I don't think there's been another time in history where we've been so cognizant of the division, of the conflicts that we have between one another, of the conflicts politically, socially, uh, across the globe, right? We don't have to look far to see these things. And so we have this beautiful picture of unity that we all long for, that we were created for, yet we don't see it realized. And so... Why is that? We have to ask, why is that? And so we have to look, secondly, at the division. At the division. <clears throat> and it's a reality of, of being a human being uh, that we, we tend to show partiality towards those who are like us, right? Towards those we feel that commonality with. So I work with international students. And uh, week by week, we gather for uh, a Bible discussion together. We have students from countries all over the globe. And uh, I can tell you where they like to be with those who are from their country 
<laughs> who they have that commonality with, right? That's where we like to be. And there's a certain comfort there that I think is good to acknowledge. There's something there. But then we tend to take it a step further, right? It, it's a short leap from, you know, this is how we do things to this is how everyone should do things. I work with students from all over the globe, so I see this uh, on a weekly basis, right? We tend to, to grow, we despise those who are not like us. And there's this division that's created by that. <clears throat> so I'm, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the author C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis was an Oxford professor. Um, he wrote several fascinating, interesting things. Um, and there's this really uh, insightful passage where they asked C.S. Lewis about life on other planets. Now, I know what you're thinking. Where is this going? But I promise it ties in. So they ask him, um, you know, what do you think about life on other planets? And this is what he says. And it's really, if you're like me, it's very sobering and it hits close to home. He says, I fear the practical, not theoretical problems which will arise if we ever meet rational creatures which are not human. Against them we shall, if we can, commit all the crimes we have already committed against creatures certainly human, but differing from us in features and pigmentation. And the starry heavens will become an object to which good men can look up only with feelings of intolerable guilt, agonized pity, and burning shame. That's, it stings a little, right? Because what he's saying is, if, if our track record of encountering those who are different from us is any indication, this will not be a good thing. And he speaks to our shame. As a fallen human race, this is part of our guilt before God, right? That we have divided from one another. And even our, oftentimes, our good intentions go wrong, don't they? Oftentimes, we have very good intentions for unity. This is a quote from a man named Brian Stanley. He's a professor in Scotland. He's a Christian. He's a man who loves missions. Uh, but he recognizes something about the missionary movement in history. And this is what he says. He says, Missionaries who were acutely conscious of their need to be radically distinctive from pagan people to whom they were sent were insufficiently aware of the equal need for them to be distinctive from the racial and cultural assumptions of their own social background. Their error was not that they were indifferent to the cause of justice for the oppressed, but that their perceptions of the demands of justice were too easily molded to fit the contours of prevailing Western ideologies. So, in other words, what he's saying is even the missionaries with good intentions, they knew they had to be different from those pagan cultures. But what they failed to see was the very unchristian parts of their own culture. And this we all have these blind spots. You know, there's... Um, Working with in a cross-cultural setting, I've, you, you hear a lot of illustrations, and there's a couple that I think are really helpful when it comes to this. And one is the elephant and the giraffe. Maybe you've heard this. The, the, there's an elephant, and um, he wants to go over to see his friend who's a giraffe. And he goes over to his, his, the giraffe friend's house, and uh, he tries to go through the door, but the door is 12 feet high and uh, about 5 feet wide. <laughs> So he can't fit in the door, but it's okay. The giraffe has a door around the back, 
The elephant comes in. The giraffe says, I'm so glad you're here. Make yourself at home. Well, all of the cabinets are way too high for the elephant. Uh, he can't fit through any of the doorways because he's too wide. Right? So even this giraffe, he had very good intentions for unity. Yet he had these blind spots that created division. Or there's the monk. Maybe you've heard the monkey and the fish illustration. There's a, a monkey and he sees a fish and it's, it's in the water and he thinks it's struggling and he says, ah, I will do the right thing. I will save this fish. And he grabs the fish out of the water and he puts it on the dry land and he said, ah, oh, I've done well. I've saved this fish from drowning. What did the monkey do? He brought his own ideas of what was best for the fish and he imposed it on the fish when really that's not what the fish needed. So even our good intentions tend to go awry. So we have, this, we have this division, and it's, it's also because, unlike this wonderful, beautiful community, we often, we don't want to give away ourselves, we want to serve ourselves. We want to be seen, even in our good works. You know, that's one of the fascinating things, when you see Jesus and the Pharisees. Um, you know, Jesus <clears throat> recognizes the Pharisees did very good things. Did they not? They followed the law carefully. Um, they often did good, commendable things. That was not Jesus' condemnation. But what is it? He says, you do it to be seen. You do it to be recognized, for others to see you doing it. He says, your reward is in heaven, and your heavenly Father sees. But, you know, they wanted to be seen for their, for their serving, for their giving away of themselves. And we live in a, in a culture and a time where it's very centered on finding ourself, discovering our own identity, discovering ourself. And that really is a crippling burden, especially um, for a, if you're a young person, you get bombarded with this message all the time. Find yourself, discover who you are, and then live that out. Well, that is a burden we can't carry. And there's a wonderful song that I think um, this author, he's an agnostic, or this, this musician, he's not a, not a Christian, uh, but he recognizes something that I think in our culture we really feel about this tension of wanting to serve ourselves rather than giving away ourselves. Uh, his, uh, this is what he says. He says, um, some of you may be familiar with this song. He says, I was raised up believing I was somehow unique. Like a snowflake, distinct among snowflakes, unique in each way you can see. And now, after some thinking, I'd say I'd rather be a functioning cog in some great machinery serving something beyond me. But I don't, I don't know what that will be. I'll get back to you someday soon, you will see. What's my name? What's my station? Oh, just tell me what I should do. Do you feel that burden? He's been taught, you know, find yourself, serve yourself, find out who you are, live into that. But he says, I just, I want to be a part of something greater than myself. I want to serve something greater than myself. So this leads to our division because we don't want to be united in something greater. We want to be self-serving. And we also, we don't put our hope in God, because we want to be self-sufficient. 
you know, what's, what's striking about this community, no one is looking at each other, are they? All their eyes, they're, they're putting their hope and their trust in God. You know, I was talking with a student the other day, and um, um, uh, he is not a believer, and, uh, but he's been attending our ministry, and uh, I've loved getting to know him. And um, he was going through a difficult time in his life. He had um, failed an exam that was threatening his status as a student. And uh, I was just offering counsel, offering to be there for him, um, and I offered to pray for him. And he said something that, that struck me. He said, Fee, it's okay. I can take care of myself. And in that moment, I thought, man, isn't that all of us? <laughs> isn't that all of us? We think, you know, I can really take care of myself. Uh, thanks, but no thanks. Um, he did end up letting me pray for him, which I'm grateful for. Um, but we don't want to put our hope in God. We want to put our hope in ourselves, in our own pursuits. <clears throat> and we put our hope in things that were never meant to give us hope. Um, so for all these reasons, we have serious, serious division. So I hope you feel the weight of that, that there's this beautiful picture here in Revelation, yet the world we experience is far from it. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And that brings us to my final point, the lamb. The lamb. We have to look at the lamb. So you saw here uh, in verse 7, or I'm sorry, um, in verse 10, it says, oh, They were all crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, the Lamb here is Jesus. It is uh, Jesus Christ. Now, Lamb is an interesting choice, isn't it? Uh, to use an animal representing uh, God, we're going to, you know, a lamb. You might think, oh, there's so many powerful creatures out there. Why? A lamb seems strange. Maybe in school you read, you know, there's a famous William Blake poem. You know, he's an old English poet. And he, he has um, one, po one poem is called The Lamb. And it's, you know, a beautiful lamb, um, peaceful lamb. And then he has another poem called The Tiger. Maybe you remember it, you know, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? So he contrasts these two things. Right? So maybe, you know, you think, well, God is, he's like the tiger. But John uses the lamb. The Bible uses the lamb. Why the lamb? Because God as the lamb, it breaks all the categories that every other religion, every other worldview has. It is so countercultural. You know, I have students who belong to religions all over the world, um, Buddhists, uh, Hindus, Muslims, uh, atheist students. Um, and uh, I can tell you that my students that come from different religions, the idea of a, a throne of God makes a lot of sense. Yes, God on the throne, powerful. Um, th this makes sense, and we must please this God on the throne. But the idea of God as a lamb, it completely breaks their categories. The idea of a God who 
willingly becomes weak in the person of Christ and willingly suffers in the place of his enemies, that is countercultural. That is something that it destroys all the categories they've had. And you'll notice here, what does the lamb do? What does this lamb do? He, well, first he saves. He says, salvation belongs to God and to the lamb. Once again, who does salvation belong to? To God. That is so countercultural. I can tell you. Um, it is, uh, the students I work with, they know uh, that in order to be right with God, you must do good works. That is how you come to know God and have peace with God. And if you come and you say, actually, salvation belongs to God. And he saves you by his grace through faith in him. That explodes our categories. It's completely countercultural. It's interesting in this passage, there's actually, there's a lot of military imagery. So the idea of the palm branches, it's, it's like a, a triumphal entry right? after war. Um, this, is, this is meant to show us the victory of God's people. Um, now, if you're going into battle, you're not taking the lamb. <laughs> you're not charging into battle with the lamb, right? But what does John say? The victory comes through the lamb who was slain. That is the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, the way of salvation. And so how, how do we overcome division? Well, you must see and experience the salvation of the Lamb. If, if you believe and follow a Savior who died for his enemies, who lived in perfect uh, glory and privilege, rightfully so, and gave it up to come and to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, if that is the God you follow, then it's impossible that you would continue to contribute to division because this is the God that you have come to know. This is what he was like. And this, this lamb brings reconciliation. You know, what do these people have in common? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing outside of their worship of the lamb. Different, I mean, John just piles it on. Different tribes, nations, languages, peoples, impressing upon you. They are from very different places. Yet look at them. They're together worshiping the Lamb. And this is what Jesus' ministry was like. He had very different people from across the spectrum as his disciples. You know, it's easy to miss sometimes. Simon is called the, uh, the zealot one of Jesus' disciples. And then Jesus had a tax collector as one of his disciples. Well, a zealot was someone who wanted to overthrow the Roman government because they thought the Roman government was the evil, uh, the most evil issue at hand. And so the zealots were all about overthrowing the Roman government. A tax collector worked for the Roman government, <laughs> was the friend of the Roman government. These two people would have been complete enemies and what does Jesus do? He brings them together. He brings them together under his lordship, under his salvation. So, in the most, uh, you know, severe division of all in this time, the Jews and the Gentiles. You know, Jesus throughout his lifetime is interacting with people that the Jews of his time would have never interacted with. And he says, these people enter the kingdom of God 
Just mind-blowing things. Mind-blowing. But you see, Jesus is creating this beautiful tapestry. This mo- it's a mosaic. You see all the different pieces, and when they come together, they make this beautiful picture that we see here. You know, I, like, I think of it like I'm a big NBA fan. Well, in the NBA, on your team, you're all wearing the same jersey, but your name's still on the back. So what do I mean by that? You are all on the same team, yet your individuality isn't destroyed. Notice, John wants you to know they are all different, but they are still together worshiping God. God does not obliterate their differences, but he reconciles them. He brings them together. And finally, the lamb, he heals the hopeless. And how does he do this? How does the lamb do this? By giving himself up for people who don't want to give themselves up. The, one, the only one who had the perfect right not to give himself up did it on our behalf to save us. And so he says, you can put your hope in God completely because he underwent the suffering to heal you. Even when you were hopeless, he brings hope. So what do we do with this? What do we do knowing that this lamb has brought us this salvation? Well, I'll close with just a few thoughts here. One is we proclaim good news. We have good news to proclaim. You have good news to proclaim. And you have good news to proclaim throughout the whole world. Throughout the whole world. You know, I love here it says there's a multitude no one can number. And my question is, do you believe that? I have a hard time believing that sometimes. I stand on a campus and I see multitudes of nations and oftentimes I think, Lord, how are you going to create a multitude that no one can number that know you and worship you? But he's saying here, no one can number. That is a promise that as you go out in mission throughout the globe, God will bring it about. And so we proclaim good news. And I would give you an encouragement, um, you know, just a, a couple practical ways. Um, you know, you could pray, pray for the persecuted. These are persecuted folks, and there are many persecuted people in the world today. So I encourage you, create time to pray for the persecuted church. And in terms of seeing God's global people uh, come to worship him, begin with where you are. Begin with where you are. Begin with those you know. Um, you know, there are so many, we, we have uh, the incredible blessing of living in a time and place where there are people from all over the world. The world is coming to us. So begin with where you are, and you never know what, what God might do. And lastly, you can bridge, we can bridge divides and offer hope. So I have a, I know a student, um, he recently graduated with his Ph.D., he lives, uh, or he, he, he is from a large country in Asia uh, where there is significant persecution, where the, the church is not allowed to openly proclaim the gospel. Uh, the church is heavily persecuted. Um, but he has come here to the United States. He studied at SMU. He got his PhD uh, in engineering. 
uh, got a job here in Dallas-Fort Worth uh, with a large multinational corporation, um, and he wants to settle down here in Dallas-Fort Worth, and uh, guess where he decided to live? You guessed it, Prosper, Texas. He wants a place where his kids can grow up and have good schools and, and have a good, uh, you know, a good childhood. Um, and uh, I'm so excited for my friend, and he's so excited uh, to move here. But he also is concerned. He's, he's worried about his family not fitting in, about his, he has a young daughter. He's worried about her not making friends at school. And what an amazing opportunity we have, you have as a community, to say, we are a part of this global family, right? And we worship the lamb who was slain, and all are welcome here, right? This is a place where divisions are overcome, and our, our, our doors are open wide to you. And you can offer them this hope. I'll close with this. If you look, if you have your Bibles, um, you can look down uh, to verse 15, to verse 15 here. And this is what, um, you know, John has this conversation uh, and he says, um, you know, Lord, who are these people? And or, um, he's speaking, uh, this is the elder speaking. And um, um, this is what he says. You know, he says, these are people who have come out of tribulation, of suffering, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this is the promise that's given to them. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the hope that you have to offer to the world, to a world that desperately needs it, a world that desperately needs to hear it, that they can, they can be forgiven, and they can be reconciled to God, and they can have every tear wiped away from their eyes. What a beautiful, beautiful promise. And so now as we continue uh, in our worship service this morning, we are now participating in this heavenly worship. At this very moment, uh, there are multitudes from all across the globe who have gone to be with the Lord, and they are worshiping with us this morning. What a beautiful, beautiful thing that we get to participate in. And we get to do that because because we know how the story ends, we can live our chapter well. So may you go and live your chapter well under the Lamb who was slain for you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so grateful that we do not save ourselves, that salvation does not belong to us, but it belongs to you, the Lamb who is slain. And you have given us this mission, Lord, this global mission to participate in. And we ask, God, that you would help us to do that, knowing that we are proclaiming the Savior of the world. Help us, Lord, to proclaim good news, to bridge divides, to offer hope to the hopeless. 
Thank you, Lord, that we have this because of your salvation. And be with us now as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.